You are listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. How are you guys doing today? It's exciting. Each week, Be The Bridge podcast tackles subjects related to race and culture with the goal of bringing understanding. But I'm going to do it in the spirit of love. We believe understanding can move us toward racial healing, racial equity, and racial unity. Latasha Morrison is the founder of Be The Bridge, which is an organization responding to racial brokenness and systemic injustice in our world. This podcast is an extension of our vision to make sure people are no longer conditioned by a racialized society, but grounded in truth. If you have not hit the subscribe button, please do so now. Without further ado, let's begin today's podcast. Oh, and stick around for some important information at the end. Well, I am so excited. Y'all, I have my friend. He's an old friend to the Be The Bridge community. Some of you guys may um, remember him in the Be The Bridge group. He was faithful for so long, and then y'all got on his nerve. No. <laughs> but I have my friend here, Dominic Gilliard. And, um, you know, and as he goes by, Dominic Du Bois Gilliard. And yep. so um, he is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical um, Covenant Church. He is also the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Um, this book won a 2018 Book of the Year for InterVarsity Press and was named Outreach Magazine's 2019 Social Issues Resource of the Year. And as you know, that this is one of the books that we um, recommend um, on our Be The Bridge list. And then also, he just wrote a new book. His latest book is called Subversive Witness, Scriptures Called to Leverage Privilege. And this was published by Zondervan. And so, um, I mean, Dominic has so much that he does. Um, as well as being an author and uh, working with the Covenant Church, he is also an adjunct professor at North Park Theological Seminary um, in the School of Restorative Arts. And he serves on the board of directors for the Christian Community Development Association. And so um, in 2015, Huffington Post named him the one of the black Christian leaders that are changing the world. So we're so honored to have um, Dominic Gillard back on the um, Be The Bridge podcast, because actually Dominic was on the Be The Bridge podcast before there was a Be The Bridge podcast. It's we did true. a Facebook interview. It's true. And we turned those things into audio. And that was one of the things that we, um, one of the episodes that we dropped at the beginning when we started our Be The Bridge podcast. We, we had so many great interviews with people over um, Facebook Live that we turned those into audio files and used them on our podcast. And then um, our community is familiar with him. Um, Dominic, last, I think it was um, last year, he spoke at our um, one of our online um, student um, events that we had. And so I'm um, explaining that, breaking it down for them. And then when they left, when you left, Dominic, their mouth was like, oh my God, like <laughs> the things that we are not told. <laughs> Man. <laughs> um, and so I love your book, um, Rethinking Incarceration. 
And so I know that we are going to love Subversive Witness. I'm just looking at it, going through some of the things. I'm like, this is another good one. This is another good one. So how are you doing, brother? Hey, sister. I'm so excited to be on with you and to be the bridge fam. Uh, we were joking a little bit before we started. You know, it's one thing to do podcasts uh, for general public, but it's another thing when you're doing it with your people. Yeah. And, you know, be the bridge, you know, this is, I've been connected so long. It really does feel like, you know, these these are collectively our people, not just your people. Right. And right. so um, <laughs> excited, excited to chop it up with everybody and uh, just engage because we are in a watershed moment for sure. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, for those of you who've been around Be The Bridge for a while, um, Dominic was in our group from the early beginnings. Um, I'm not even sure how you found out about it, but we met online through that um, Mm -hmm. and have since um, kept in contact. And now he's in Atlanta. Yep, yep, yep. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know if we need to tell people where we are. People crazy out there. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. true. (laughs) But um, he was dropping gems then and, um, you know, and this this has continued. But, you know, like you said, uh, we are definitely in a watershed moment. And I want, I want you to talk about that moment. Uh, Why do you feel like we're in a watershed moment? Yeah, there is, you know, when we, when we do this work, one of the things I think we can never lose sight of is the fact that we're doing this work on the ground and we're also engaging in spiritual warfare too. Um, And there is this kind of clash that's going on right now that's been intensifying and there is this this backlash that has emerged and to to the extent that you know when you have pastors and congregations who are simply trying to call their people to be repairers of the breach and ambassadors of reconciliation and co-laborers with Christ they're being denounced as critical race theory theorists who are peddling a false gospel. Um, and so I think, you know, there's always been, you know, some tension around some of these conversations, some people who will diminish justice at the expense of trying to uplift evangelism. And some of those kind of dynamics have been at play. But I haven't seen a moment like this where people in congregations feel so emboldened to denounce uh, ministers and leaders who are really just trying to faithfully call their folks into what the gospel commissions us to be in the world. And so that's one of the, that's one of the reasons why I really feel the intensity of this moment. I think uh, another element is, I'd say before about five years ago, it, it was like really not PC to be <laughs> pretty overt in kind of your in racist ideology or supremacist ideology or even this kind of perspective of superiority where I think there has been this way in which that has been kind of re-emboldened um, in a way that we really haven't seen since really the 60s and 70s. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is a moment uh, and I think for bridge builders, the thing that we have to recognize is that it's also an opportunity. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's really unique about, you know, this community and the ways in which we understand that, like, this challenge is not just something that we should shrink away from or be scared of, but it's actually an opportunity. And so, um, but this is without question, uh, uh, 
a watershed moment and to really use the language of Dr. King, we need to understand the fierce urgency of now. So good, brother. You know, I, I think about that too. Um, just even some of the things that are getting, um, I guess, attached to critical race theory. I mean, some of the simplicity of um, even teaching kindness or, you know, just, or, or, you know, or, or, or factual history. Yeah. Factual <laughs> history. And, um, you know, it's like you're being punished for being truth tellers and truth tellers with facts. Cause we yeah. have actual factuals, um, documented, um, you know, and so it's just amazing. Um, but you know what, but never before have I seen a time you know, and we're not that old, you know what I'm saying? But I'm just saying, like, and I, there are so many books that are being written. Um, you know, someone was telling me that, you know, there's a lot of books now being rented, written to counter, um, you know, this narrative on reconciliation and, you know, racial righteousness and, you know, and systemic racism and social justice, all these things. And I, will, I was like, that, first of all, hist historically, that's all that has existed. It's yeah. not, that's not new. Yeah. What's new to the conversation is all of these, um, your book, my book, Jamar's book, like all these books now that are really um, speaking um, um, truth into these spaces that we haven't had before, you know, yep. not at this magnitude of when you, you know, every time I look, there's a new book coming out and I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, because we know that not all books are going to reach all people, but yeah. when we have such a wealth of books, you yeah. know, and good books, um, you know, that gives people choices, you know? Yeah. And so I'm excited about this continued conversation um, that we're having. And, um, you know, God is showing up, you know, um, look at the fruit, you know, what's happening. I know you rethinking incarceration did really well. Um, and that was your first book, you yeah. know, and I know this one, if I have anything to do with it, it's definitely going to do well too. So Man, sister, uh, I received it. <laughs> Cause we're definitely fans of your work and your writing and just of your mind and of your wisdom, um, that you, that you had and so that you have, um, you know, and I wanted to just read this introduction and I want you to kind of talk about this, you know, just a, a little bit more. Um, you said you wrote this book to animate this, um, the stagnant faith of discontent, sisters, sisters and brothers who yearn to see and pursue the coming of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You said, I pray that it re revives the faith of those who have walked away from God as well of those considering walking away and transforms the witness of believers who are well adjusted to the unjust status quo. Subversive witness seeks to name, address, and deconstruct the spiritual strongholds as resting the church and distorting our witness. Illuminate that just a little bit for us. And I, I love how, you know, I think what resonated with me is the part when you said those that have walked away from God as well as those considering walking away. And I've seen this because of um, the denial and how we've allowed Christian nationalism and all the things to whitewash the truth 
of Jesus and um, people are discouraged, you know, and I'm seeing that happen and I know you're seeing it too. So just kind of illuminate that a little bit for us. Yeah. um, And I didn't even bring up, you know, the uh, the insurrection attempt when we were talking about, you know, the the urgency of now. But yeah. yeah, when we have, uh, so one of the quotes I have in the book is from Brian Stevenson, and he talks about, um, I believe, he says, I believe in truth and reconciliation, but I don't believe that they're simultaneous, but they're sequential. There's truth that makes way for reconciliation to manifest itself. And, you know, I think the church has been seduced into this facade of reconciliation where we can evade truth. And I think that's been part of the reason why we're seeing kind of this resistance that we were just talking about before uh, be kind of swell to the degree that it has. Um, And one of the prime illustrations of this is, you know, when the church tries to have the conversation about privilege, Um, and in most congregations, I've noticed that there's really three responses that exist. Uh, so in the first congregation, there is a denial that privilege is a real thing and it is denounced as unbiblical and the conversation is stopped right there. In the second congregation, there is some kind of acknowledgement that privilege is a thing from leadership, but they determine that the conversation is too tricky of a terrain to navigate. And so they decide to avoid the conversation because of a fear of losing members and a fear of losing funding. And then in the third response, uh, congregations and congregants, I mean, uh, pastors and congregants affirm that privilege is real and they try to do the hard work of really reckoning with it and trying to figure out uh, what it means for their witness But oftentimes, a lot of congregants come out of that conversation feeling a paralysis and feeling kind of stuck and not knowing what to do with all these new revelations. And as I saw those predominant responses, I really kind of went back and spent time with God and in prayer and discernment and in scripture. And I really started to see that there is this consistent thread throughout scripture that really offers us a fourth way. And that fourth way is that scripture is clear. Privilege is real and it exists and it addresses it multiple times throughout the biblical text. But scripture is also clear that we are always going to be tempted to exploit privilege for our selfish gain, as opposed to taking a Philippians two type mindset and really looking at privilege as something that we could steward and leverage to expand the kingdom and sacrificially love our neighbors. And so that was this thing. That's really kind of what really helped bring the book forth. Um, Me realizing how the church's witness was being hamstrung by this and what that meant. And what it meant was that the things that are, so important in so many of our communities, particularly in in disenfranchised communities, the church was by and large, um, was not creating space to deal with and name 
the the trauma and the pain and the sin that was thwarting the shalom uh, that God created all of us to enjoy and and to enjoy together. Um, and so because the church didn't have the integrity, uh, hasn't had the integrity to have these difficult conversations, um, folks who are feeling the weight of this sin and the impact of, you know, the oppressive status quo, they're walking out. They're saying that I'm not hearing what you're preaching is good news because it's not addressing the material realities of my life, of my community, of the way in which uh, oppression is, you know, weighing on me and my family and our relationships. I'm not seeing how the gospel touches down to the ground and actually is being this transformative presence because we don't even make space to talk about it (laughs) in our fellowship. And so folk, um, I have so many friends, so many called and gifted friends who have left the church because the church hasn't created space for uh, faithful conversations, conversations that are biblical, theological conversations. And we have allowed the rest of the world to... So that, let me let me reframe it this way, because I think this is really an important distinction. And I think, you know, it takes a certain level of maturity to hear this and respond to it. Um when, and I'll just focus on the on the U.S. here. So when our when the country was participating in indigenous land theft and broken treaties and uh, legally legitimating and justifying slavery and black folks being you know deemed three fifths of a person and legal property, these conversations were conversations that the church should have been having. And the, sh- the conversation should have emerged from our reading of scripture, from our engagement with the biblical text. But all too often, we lack the integrity and the courage to have these difficult conversations and to raise our prophetic voice in the midst of a culture that was affirming all of these things, in the midst of a nation that was legally justifying all these things. The church should have been a countercultural voice bearing witness to the biblical truths and the inbreaking kingdom of God. But oftentimes, we were a voice affirming the status quo and actually legitimating the oppression that was becoming institutionalized and inscribed into law. Um, When we didn't justify or legitimate, oftentimes we shrank back and we were silent. And so what happened as a consequence of the church's silence and lack of integrity is that folk outside the church picked up these conversations that we should have been having and they framed them and they tried to move forward and kind of advocate on behalf of them. And so now when the, when ministers and leaders and congregants are trying to have these conversations that we always should have been having, folks are denouncing us as having political conversations, but they're only framed as political because we didn't do the work we should have done from the beginning, which was the biblical theological work and responding to the way the scripture raises these issues consistently and calls us into uh, a countercultural way of engaging, uh, a way that recognizes that, you know, the hallmarks of worldly empire are antithetical to the good news of the kingdom of God. Um, and, you know, we live in a world that, you know, 
normalizes economic exploitation, a world that allows for a sliding scale of humanity to exist and essentially, you know, makes it into law, custom, and practice. Um, so when we in our, you know, Declaration of Independence, we call uh, indigenous people merciless Indian savages. Um, you know, this is an affirmation that the logics of this world and this nation in particular are not biblically rooted. Like when people call this a Christian nation, this is a direct contrast to the biblical truth we know that's revealed in Genesis that all people are equitably made in the image of God. And so when you have kind of this normative kind of anti-gospel reality that is the status quo and the church doesn't prophetically speak against that and to speak into that and to say that we as the people of God can't conform to the patterns of this world and this type of logic, but we actually have to be set apart and folk who bear witness to something different. Um, that's where we we lost our way and really yielded our authority to lead out in these conversations. And so that's part of the backlash we're experiencing now as folks like you were saying, you, me, Jamar, so many other people, Sandra Velanasso, all these different folk who are like trying to give us a more prophetic vision of what does it mean for us to really live out the biblical commission of being repairs of the breach. And I wanna I wanna just sit there for a minute because that phrase is so important because it tells us there are breaches that exist in our world. And these breaches aren't just the breach that sin causes between us and God. Like when you look at Isaiah 58, those are physical, material, tangible breaches that it, that it, emerge from systemic oppression, uh, uh, workers' rights concerns. These, these are tangible things. And so when we don't have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to respond to sin in our world, be it individual, be it institutional, systemic, legislative, then we slowly but surely do find ourselves kind of conforming to the patterns of this world, which Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us explicitly that we can't do if we're going to bear a faithful witness. So that's why I think, you know, for me, so much of my heart is for folk in the church who have stayed, who who see these problems, but have refused to leave because they say that we know that the, these distorted manifestations of Christianity are not the true gospel. But I also have a real heart for brothers and sisters who just couldn't stay anymore because the church was doing harm to them. Um, and it was essentially spiritually abusive in its negligence to speak to um, the trauma that their members were carrying to the sin that was so pervasive right outside of their four walls. Um, and, and so I want to bear witness to the fact that there are ministers, there are leaders, there are Christians who see them, who see that pain and want to affirm where they are, because the church is not just exclusively within the four walls. There are a lot of brothers and sisters who are faithfully following Jesus who just couldn't deal with the church anymore. And they need folks who can see them and who can also speak to and equip them and encourage them in their walk as they continue to try to uh, discern where God is ultimately calling them and how, how God is leading them to bear a faithful witness. 
So good, man. That's so good. And I think that's, whew, you said so much there. <laughs> <laughs> you said so much. And it's, it's, it's just basically like, um, you know, there's so much um, the church could have done. Like, you know, like I say this a lot. I said, you know, when we think about the church, um, and you think about all the things that have happened historically and things that happen now, it wasn't like it was on the sidelines saying, don't do this. And of course you have outliers and people, but we're talking about always the institution. A remnant. You know, yep. there's always a remnant. But we're talking about the institution majority. You know, you have denominational splits, um, splits um, over this, you know. And now we look at it, it just it's just rebranded different now. We're dealing with some of the same things. You know, I was um, looking at someone, they have a lot of followers, like a lot. And um, they were just basically saying they don't believe in systemic racism. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, so what is your proof to back that up? Like what historical facts, what present facts do you have? Um, you know, and I'm just like, wow, it's just baffling. These are Christian people. Um, and I'm like, they clearly have not read um, Dominique's uh, books. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, or even, you know, for me, or even the biblical text, like, exactly. I mean, let's, let's, let's be frank. Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10 is about systemic sin and while racism is not in the Bible because it is a newer concept, you have ethnocentrism explicitly displayed where the flourishing of the Egyptians is rooted in the dehumanization, subjugation, and enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors. So like, and Pharaoh's bigotry and his, his sinfulness ultimately oozes out of his individual life into the systems and structures that he's tasked with stewarding. And so for, for somebody to look at the biblical text and they are literally making laws like that and to the point where it crescendos and says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. If exactly. that ain't systemic sin, I don't know what is. They, and and, and, it, and it's, it's blatantly in the text. They're not reading the Bible, though. <laughs> they're not reading the Bible. They, they're reading. <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> I have convinced myself they are still reading the slave Bible. Mm, <laughs> they done, took, mm, they done mm, took that mm. part out. They done took Man. Exodus out. And let's uh, just see with that. I mean, the weight of ministers being complicit in literally distorting, intentionally taking scripture mm -hmm. apart to serve their own purposes. Like, that's the depth of depravity that we're talking about. Like, that's the depth of brokenness that we are trying to, that's, that we're commissioned to be reconcilers of. So when folks kind of shy away from the call or the commission of reconciliation because of resistance. I say, we aren't really historically understanding what we're up against. Like this isn't just something that's happened outside the church. These were ministers, leaders. These were congregants who were fully bought into the, the unbiblical notion that they could serve two masters, both Jesus and white supremacy. And scripture is explicitly clear that that's impossible. And so, 
yeah, we, we, we have to, we have to be aware. We have to know our history because knowing our history allows us to understand how we need to be equipped and how intensely fortified we must be as we try to combat these powers and principalities that are continuously at work. And one of the things I talk about in this book real quick before we go on is, you know, the church loves to talk about the mission of God and we should talk about the mission of God. But one of the things I don't think we talk about enough, which scripture explicitly points out, is that Satan's got a mission too. And Satan's mission is very clearly defined in scripture. It's to kill, steal, and destroy our witness. And when we allow racism to establish a foothold within the body of Christ, and we delude ourselves into thinking that racism is a political issue and not a biblical theological issue that should inform our discipleship and our pursuit of life together as the people of God, we allow Satan to mobilize his mission through our wit through the, our distorted witness. And I talk about one of the primary ways that Satan does that is through unbridled privilege and the way in which it blinds us to reality and blinds us to the biblical truth that we are all inherently connected. And um, my well-being and my flourishing should be connected to my incarcerated brothers and sisters flourishing, my sister or brother who doesn't have enough to eat, doesn't have stable housing, uh, all across the racial spectrum, uh, my, my brothers and sisters with mental disabilities, physical disabilities, like we have to have a new understanding of belonging. Um, and that's what the gospel is supposed to commission us into. And when we don't live that way, we allow Satan to accomplish his mission in the midst of proclaiming that we are living on mission for Christ. Living on mission. Living on mission. Living on mission for Christ. Wow. Incredible insights. Don't go anywhere. We're going to pause for a quick moment and we'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Being a human is exhausting and that's for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are or what you have. Life can really take a toll. One common stressor is how we give away our power. You can't control what someone else does or what happens to you, but you can control your controllables and how you choose to respond. That's how you keep your power. And therapy can help you do this. Therapy can help you learn how to do this. It's not a Jedi mind trick. It's learning what you're capable of. And as our resident therapist says, when life gives you lemons, you can either make lemonade or you can squeeze them into your eye. Your choice. You don't want to do that. You see, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. So let's go make lemonade. And I'm grateful that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Be The Bridge listeners get 10% off. As you know, the work that we do in Be The Bridge, we need someone there to support us. We need a support system and BetterHelp can be that support system. BetterHelp.com slash Be The Bridge, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. Thanks for staying with us. Let's get back to our conversation. 
it's just interesting to me how we can believe in the depravity of man, but then believe that there's no systemic racism. Like it just don't, it, it just makes no sense to me. But like what we're dealing with is, like you said, is spiritual blindness where people cannot see and we're not dealing with flesh and blood here in that spiritual blindness. And so one of the things you say um, also is you say the church has largely failed to heed the, the, um, John the Baptist call chiefly because we have diluted how the Bible defines repentance rather than actual turning away from sin to return to God and reestablish righteous relationship with our creator neighbors and creation within too many congregations repentance is defined and practiced as merely um, just oral confession and so um that's one of the things, you know, I hear a lot of people say they do not believe in, um, you know, collective repentance or collective, you know, confession. And, you know, just when you say heed the call of of John the Baptist, you know, yeah. to repent, you know, and what that looks like. But it's not just confession, but it's a complete turning away from. And what yeah. we see a lot in today is not even a complete turning away from, you know, we just, we acknowledge, but we just kind of like, we don't even do a about face. <laughs> like, we don't, we don't, we just kind of like, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna package this in another way and pretend like, you know, that you don't know, you know, but I'm just gonna package it in a different way. You or know, I understand speak- that I have a responsibility vocationally to acknowledge uh-huh. this or, yeah. I know that this is coming down the pipeline and people are going to find out eventually. So let me get ahead of it and acknowledge Uh that this happened. But I'm going to persist in the same behavior um, because, you know, that's the real difference between confession is a one time thing. Uh Repentance is a lifestyle. Um, It is a turning away from sin and back to God. And John the Baptist is clear that there should be tangible fruit that's manifested in your life and your relationships Mm -hmm. and your engagement in the world because you have turned away from sin and turned back to God. Um, And so, you know, that's the real, the real thing that we really need to hone in on. Like what, how do we start to disciple our folks in a way that they understand the difference between confession and repentance? Mm Because anybody can confess, but repentance becomes a lifestyle and it should be something where it is obvious to folks who are in your life and observing your life that something is different because mm-hmm. of your submission to the Lordship of Jesus. Yeah, that's so good. And I love, um, you know, I taught, I love this because I feel like I was like, mm, I'm just going to like, it's just affirmation all in this book, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, you know, when you use that story talking about um, Ruth and Boaz and, you know, the, how she was able to glean the fields yep. and how that's a act of justice and righteousness mm-hmm. right there that's built into Jewish law. Like none of this, the things that we're talking about, how people weld their privilege, like, because God understands what it's like to be human here on this earth and the things that we deal with, the selfishness, uh, the self-centeredness, you know. And so built into this system, you know, um, there's justice. And you talk about that, um, you know, the the the. the 
the things like cleaning the laws and practicing Jubilee. And, you know, you use acts a lot and you you walk through that whole story about the feeding of the widows. But, you know, so many people, um, they look at this script, they look at the Bible and they don't see those elements and they don't see that. Like when I read Acts 6, I, I see that that was ethnic hostility. And, you know, and it wants you to kind of, you know, exegete a little bit more to kind of dig deep, you know, in that. And you don't see that. Um, one of the things that you do in this book is you center the leadership of women of color, you know. So, you know, I'm going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, why was doing this important for you? Yeah, I think... You know, for me as an African-American, it would have been really easy to write a book about privilege and just stick to race. Because all that means is I just got to point a finger out there. And so for me, it was really important to try to write with integrity. And the best way to do something with integrity for me is to model it. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we, as much as racial brokenness exists in our world, you know, there's gender uh, brokenness that's right there alongside of it. And for me as a male, I thought it was really important when we talked about privilege to expand the conversation. We have to talk about race because, you know, that's one of the most glaring manifestations of privilege that exists, but it's not the exclusive manifestation of privilege that exists. And for me, just like we want, our, our white sisters and brothers who who come into revelation of these things to talk to their white sisters and brothers and have these hard conversations uh, at their dinner tables with their you know grandchildren and um, all those kind of things. The same is true for men. Like it's time for our brothers in Christ to step up and have some real honest conversations about patriarchy and the way in which we are complicit with it through the way that we interpret scripture, preach, teach, and disciple folks to read and engage the biblical text. Because oftentimes it allows us to sidestep or to erase some of the themes that the spirit is really trying to bring to the surface and trying to call us to reckon with. And so for me, one, it was important to do that. But then two, I think another tendency that we have when we preach and teach is to celebrate um, the males who start to play leading roles. But we ignore the fact that those men only got the opportunity to grow to become the leaders that they were because of the faithful witness of their mothers or women in the community. And I think, you know, I really try to make that point crystal clear with Moses. Moses is somebody who, if it were not for the faithful witness of the Hebrew midwives who directly disobeyed a direct order from Pharaoh, if it wasn't for his mom who was willing to break the law and to function as a fugitive, uh, well, to fugitively harbor him, if it wasn't for Miriam seeing an open opportunity to go speak into Pharaoh's daughter's life, if it wasn't for Pharaoh's daughter actually experiencing the the power of the Holy Spirit that really troubled the waters and actually uh, liberated her from the indoctrination of her father. Like, think about this. Pharaoh cast all of these laws and legislation. Think about the bigotry that she was exposed to over the dinner table. Think about the way in which she was discipled to see Hebrews as people whose lives didn't matter. And if they did matter, the only reason why they did matter is so that they could be exploited for their labor. 
Like they were literally, she was literally taught to see them as expendable people. But then when she actually encounters Moses and she opens the basket, she doesn't see what she was taught to see. Like the spirit of God transforms her vision and she sees that it's somebody else who is, she wouldn't have used this language, but somebody else made in the image of God. And she realizes that her humanity is tied to this person's humanity. And this is part of what we miss in the gospel when we don't uplift the role of women and the prophetic leadership and resilience that they display that made room for male leadership like Moses. Because let's, let's, let's also be honest, like these subversive women who were willing to put their lives on the line to bring him forth, they also were the ones who played a critical role in establishing his faith foundation. They discipled him so that he could become the great disciple that he was. And I think when we're not honest about that, we miss opportunities to really press into a story like what's going on with Pharaoh's daughter and how does she bear a subversive witness? Because we don't really get to the point that we really make these these biblical texts materially real in a way that connects to our reality. We got so many sisters and brothers who come from homes full of bigotry where they were discipled by their parents or their grandparents to see you and me as expendable, as people who have no worth or value. But the power of the gospel is displayed in the story because it reveals that the gospel has the power to break generational cycles of bigotry. We don't have to be forever defined by the legacy of our ancestors. We get um, our foreparents. We get a chance to write a new story because we encounter God and God has the power to liberate us from those kind of shackles. And when we don't sit down with the text in the way that I try to sit down with it in this, in in this book, we miss opportunities to see the goodness of the gospel in a way that it invites us into a deeper community with one another and a belief that something else is possible. Cause I think part of what holds us captive is I think this is all we see. This is all we know. Uh, the status quo, the racism, the, the division, the brokenness, that sometimes we, we make the gospel too small. And we start to believe that, yeah, these were great stories of the past, but God doesn't still act in that way today. And it's not true, sisters and brothers. It's not true. And so I, I just wanted to really kind of press into some of those texts to give us a, an imagination of what the power, the spirit still has the power to do in our lives. And to think about this, you know, if somebody this close to the person who created legislation that was killing and oppressing and exploiting all these folk can be liberated from <laughs> that type of bigotry and toxicity. There is nobody who's beyond redemption. Like there is nobody who cannot be freed from the powers and the principalities who cannot be liberated to participate and demonstrate the kingdom uh, in, in profound and transformative ways that literally change people's lives, that change the trajectory of our communities. Um, and I do another thing with Zacchaeus in a similar way, um, later in the book where, you know, Zacchaeus is somebody who literally got rich off of stealing from his neighbors and oppressing his neighbors and participating in a system of sin. Like literally he got filthy rich <laughs> and ultimately, you know, he, he, 
he bears his faithful witness in the fact that when he encounters Jesus and Jesus comes to his house, let's be clear, Jesus didn't just come to have a meal. Jesus came to call a sinner to repentance. And when he came and he encounters God, he first confesses, but then moves into repentance. And he talks about how he recognizes that he got wealthy off of this stealing, but he recognizes that just saying I'm sorry was would be inadequate. Like the gospel required more. And that's, again, one of the real reasons why we have to make this distinction between confession and repentance. Because Zacchaeus, could confession would have been, Jesus, I stole from all these people, and I realized that that was wrong. And then it would have ended there. But no, Zacchaeus said, I realized that I have to not only pay back what I stole, but four times as much because I realized that my sin had a multiplicable impact on communities and it harmed people and impacted people that I never directly encountered. And we have to have that kind of maturity within our faith to be able to soberly assess sin and the impact of our sins. And then we can really start to meet and discern with God and community about what does it look like to make reconciliation a, a material reality. And for Zacchaeus, somebody who got filthy rich off of sin and stealing, it meant reparations. And I know that's a scary word for a lot of folk, but it's, it's, it's right there in the biblical text. And it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't say salvation has come into this house until he actually has articulated this understanding that his reconciliation entailed uh, reparations. And so I think, you know, I just wanted to do that, but I don't think that we can faithfully read the text in that way if we don't center the role of women and women of color and the prophetic legacy that they've played and paved for these men we celebrate, including Jesus. If it was not for the prophetic yes of Mary and her willingness to be shunned and denounced and called everything but a child of God in her community before what she knows she didn't do, but everybody else assumes she did, um, you know, Jesus doesn't emerge in the way that he does within the biblical text. And so we need to honor our women and really call forth the prophetic role that women of color have played and the way in which they have played instrumental roles in actually laying the faith foundation for so many men that we celebrate and follow and model our faith after. But when we deny the women who played the critical role that brought them forth, I think we're not faithfully uh, bearing witness to the good news of the gospel. So good. Thank you, brother. And thank you for speaking into that. I mean, you know, a lot of times we don't make that connection, especially when we're talking about disparities and injustice, you know, but really calling that out because that is a part of the culture and what we see in scripture and in text is that, you know, that was a part of the culture then and how Jesus stepped into the scene and was counterculture, like everything Jesus did. You know, um, and so thank you for continuing that that legacy. And the other thing you you talk about, uh, you did something unique in this book, you know, and Be the Bridge. We talk about trauma a lot, um, especially um, as it relates to um, BIPOC people um, and and the impact of that and, and the constant in, impact, you know, uh, of trauma and not just dealing with generational trauma, but even current trauma, you know, um, you know, this happening. 
Um, the imp- the impact of the lives of um, some key biblical characters. You talk about this um, this trauma and how it impacted. What inspired you to do that, and why do you think that more books and Bible studies need to do this um, to help people um, have a deeper understanding of trauma? Yeah, I think. I think we need to do it because I think, again, it makes the biblical text feel more real, more Mm -hmm. relevant. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there are so many things that are going on in our lives that we completely disconnect from the biblical text. And it makes the text feel kind of archaic and not Uh relevant for our lives. And I think trauma is one of those ways that I've really seen that happen. Um, I think another thing that happens when we don't acknowledge trauma and reckon with it in the biblical text, um, I think we start to see ourselves as people who are unworthy and incapable of being used by God because we know the trauma that we hold. We know the scars and the brokenness, and we say, God would never choose to work in and through somebody like me. Um, And so I think when we start to really reckon with that and realize that this is the same kind of struggles that people in the biblical text had, um, and Moses is a primary example of this, like Moses was running from the call of God on his life because he had so much trauma that he was trying to navigate. Like, think about this. So we just talked about Pharaoh and all the legislation and everything he was doing. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's house. He is raised in a house where the head of the household thinks that he is somebody who should be put to death and has no value except as a slave. Um, and so you know that he had to be hearing this kind of messaging and these be seeing these things. And when he looked outside his windows, everybody who looked like him were folk who were doing slave labor. Um, and so think about the the cognitive dissonance of Moses being raised in the palace as a Hebrew in the Egyptian empire. Like, so, and I think it's no wonder that it it takes Moses 40 years to hear and heed the call upon his life because he's trying to figure out how, what do I do with this cognitive dissonance of being raised in this empire? And then ultimately when he goes out and he steps out of the palace First thing he does, God leads him to go see his folk, and he sees a person just like him getting whipped because they're not working fast enough, and his trauma takes over. And this is one of the things that, you know, there's so thankful for recent scholarship, like books like uh, The Body Keeps Score, um, books like... Um, my grandmother's hands, um, these books that are really making trauma studies more palatable and more accessible for more folks. Um, and one of the things we know about trauma at this point is that when you grew up in a context of trauma, I love the way Resma Minikin talks about it. He says, you know, when trauma is such an enduring reality, it distorts our behavior and that distorted behavior can start to be seen as culture if we're not careful. And so we also know that when we are re-traumatized, when we get back in a situation that triggers our trauma, usually we, we respond in three ways, fight, flight, or freeze. And, and we see Moses in this moment, his trauma takes over and he fights and he ends up killing a man. And it was because he didn't have an opportunity to deal with his trauma and that trauma 
rewired his brain in a way that he he wasn't even fully in control of his body. And we see these kind of dysfunctional behaviors. And these are things that we see in our churches. These are things we see in ourselves, if we're honest, and we, we got help. And some of us got the resources to get therapy. And so I think, you know, so for me, I think it's really important for us to start reckoning with this in the biblical text. You can't read a text like Tamar and not understand the biblical text is laced with trauma. And the other thing that you can't, well, we shouldn't be able to read a text like Tamar um, after reading the story of David and Bathsheba and not make the connection that while, yes, David was a man after God's own heart and while, yes, David repented for what he did, he didn't do what he needed to do and teach his son to behave in a different way that wasn't rooted in the same toxic, toxic masculinity as he was. And hence, because he didn't, Tamar has to pay the consequence. Like we, we got to be able to make these connections and our preaching and our teaching and our discipleship historically has not equipped us to make these connections. And when we don't make these connections, we're doomed to repeat so many of the same mistakes of our, our, our foreparents and we we limit our opportunity to be the kind of transformative presence in the world that God wants us to be, that God commissions us to be as bridge builders, as ambassadors of reconciliation, as repairers of the breach. And so I really wanted to try to reckon with those type of questions on the ground in this book to try to equip us to have a better hermeneutic, a better way of reading and engaging scripture so that we can have a more authentic relationship with God and a more faithful witness in the world. Man, this thing is loaded. <laughs> I am so grateful for you, brother. That was a lot. And I mean, you, um, you know, you were you were just talking about Zacchaeus, and I wanted to go back there before we uh, we close out. You you were talking about Zacchaeus, and um, a lot of times when we bring up Zacchaeus, you know, people will say the argument is, well, you know, that was about individual sin. <laughs> You know, and I mean, I, I wanted to address that in, in this and, you know, and, we, and how we connect this to also systemic exploitation, because, you know, yes, it was about his um, individual sin, but his individual sin exploited, you know, thousands if not more, um, like you said. And when you start talking about economic justice, when we start talking about, you mentioned the word reparation, and this is a very, um, this is a word that the Be The Bridge community should be um, familiar with um, because we talk about that in our guide and also in the book. And so um, this is a friendly word to us. You know, we should understand that this is a, a biblical way. And, you know, when you talk about repair, because reparation means to repair. So like you said, it's not enough to just say, you know, I'm sorry for doing that. And keep but all no, the you, money. Exactly. <laughs> I took all your money. No, you need to you need to fix what you broke. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you need to fix what you broke. It's like me taking your bike, tearing up, and and saying I, I'm so sorry. You know, and you know I'm I'm sorry. No, I need to replace your bike. <laughs> you know, yep. um, and so. Um, and I mean, and, and that's practical to us, you know, but when you start, you know, how can congregations help people think 
and um, and be better bridge builders as they struggle with economic justice? And what what would you say to um, pastors and um, Bible teachers and um, be the bridge leaders who are out there trying to make this connection for people? I think a lot of, I think it starts with truth, truth telling. I think we have to be willing to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And so I have a whole section that gives a whole myriad of examples of reparations that are happening in live time. Um, and I also have, I start the session by this confession that the Kansas City Star did. And it was really this beautiful confession that was really enticed by the faithful witness of Brian Stevenson, who, when he uh, opened up the um, national, uh, the memorial to justice and peace and different things, he was talking to different folks. And in the midst of it, uh, there was a local paper who wanted to spend some time with him and get a shout out. And he really wasn't prioritizing them and they wanted to know why and he said well I want you to go back and read your reporting during this legacy when all of the suppression was going on and I want you to see what you were communicating to the world and they did and then they came back and they said okay I understand why you don't trust us now what do we need to do to try to show that we have actually changed and to actually elicit that trust now um And he says, you know, I want you to confess and repent, essentially. Um, And and they do. But then there's this other uh, paper in Kansas City who does the same type thing. Because what he says is, I want to start this national movement of confession and repentance, essentially, uh, where folks name their complicity in the racial animus and brokenness and systemic sin that have been normalized within the status quo. And and I think churches have to do the same thing. I think we need to go back and see if we're a, a older church that has existed for a long time. We need to go back and listen to what sermons were being preached and what pr- curricula was being produced during the civil rights movement, during white flight, during you know all of these things that were happening. And we need during to be confessional. Race theory. During, during, yeah, hey, well, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Moment. And we need to be confessional about that mm-hmm. and the role in which we distorted the gospel to serve our own self-interest. And that is going to be the thing that actually starts to help people to see that you're serious about the fact that you've actually engaged in repentance and not just confession. And, and when it comes to economic justice, we need to be honest about the ways in which we have been complicit with the exploitation. And this, of course, this is not a universal truth, but um, this is, you know, too many churches have been complicit with the the exploitation of our sisters and brothers behind bars. Sojourners a few, uh, maybe two years ago, wrote an article about how many churches get their pews built with prison labor um, because we don't want to pay the right amount, uh, what it actually costs to get those things built. Uh, We will go and participate in ungodly exploitation to save ourselves a few dollars. Think about all of the churches who use... um, 
the, the labor of undocumented people. And we, we choose them, um, not to say that we don't want to give them work, but oftentimes we choose them because we can exploit them for their wages and not pay what we all, all otherwise would have to pay. And so I think, you know, those are part of the conversations. But when we go back and we realize the land that we're on, um, you know, we need to acknowledge the indigenous folk who had, you know, used to, you know, be on this land. We also need to recognize if we're, our church was built in a suburban community, um, it probably was disconnected to this legacy of white flight. We need to have these conversations about uh, the way in which, you know, suburban development is rooted in a history and legacy of racism. Um, you know, I always like to share this for tangible uh of the $120 billion worth of money that was invested in new housing subsidized by the government between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of that money went to non-white families. Mm. Like, we have repeat to be... A that, repeat that again, <laughs> because for everyone that talks about there being no systemic racism, when you hear statistics like this, and you're talking about up until 1962, and this is before the Fair Housing Act. Um, this is, you know, my my both of my parents were born by then. Um, you know what I'm saying? I'm only one generation removed from this. So I just want to, because people don't understand that word and what they mean when they say that. I'll repeat that again. Yeah. Of the $120 billion worth of funds that were invested in subsidized housing, between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of that money went to non-white families, mm. which meant people of color were locked out of home ownership while white Americans were essentially given exclusive access. And that was just, that's just a small taste of the affirmative action, the, 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 the laws and the policies and the systems that were formed to lift some up. Yep. And to continue to oppress others. Yep. And those are the things that we have to talk about. And those are the things that I love that you talk about and that we talk about and be the bridge is, you know, revealing those truths, you know. And um, I'll never forget, um, Dominic, I was um, in Gainesville and, you know, we we talk about redlining and we were talking about things that were happening now, even as it relates to um, housing appraisals and bank loans, stuff that's happening and, and Philly and different ones because, you know, um, people in intersect with systems. Yep. And when people are broken, um, they continue some of the broken systems. And so, um, and this lady, we were talking about this and she was just like in shock and just offended, you know? And I didn't know if she was in shock or offended because of what I was saying. Or, you know, she was like 80 years old. I was like, I don't know if this lady is gonna, is gonna hug me or hit me, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I remember her coming up to me and this is prior to COVID and she grabbed my hand and I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> like, cause I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna have to let the, the 80 year old woman, I'm just gonna let her hit me. I'm just gonna mm -hmm. let her hit me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> she grabbed my hand and she said, thank you. You know, and she was like, thank you, because I didn't know if I had known, you know, and it's on purpose that you don't know. Yep. And it's on purpose that people continue to not want you to know. 
And it's on purpose that we don't talk about this in school to give context to what we're talking about today. So I'm so grateful for you that you are writing the truth and that you are speaking the truth. What are some things, you know, there's a lot happening. You know, we talked about this watershed moment. And as we close, um, you know, these are just some questions that, you know, I kind of like to ask um, our guests, um, our community, you know, I don't consider you a, a guest. I consider you a part of our, our community. Um, but what are some things that you are lamenting in this moment, you know, in this season? Yeah, I am lamenting the fact that we still ask so many of our sisters our BIWOC sisters to choose between being advocates against racism or patriarchy. Um, That still today in 2021, we aren't allowing people to be the fullness of who they are and affirm their, their total humanity because we are still so committed to doing activism in silos. Um, So I'm deeply lamenting that. Um, I'm deeply lamenting that, let's just be generous and say every other month, we're hearing some kind of story of kind of sexual abuse and assault, and a lot of it is connected to churches. Um, It's a travesty, Um, and it is killing, stealing, and destroying our witness. Um, And I would say uh, I am lamenting how one of, the, one of the things I say in the book at the end, towards the end, is that I say that we can't, as ministers, we can't allow the gospel we proclaim to be dictated by what our members are ready for on their own. We are acquiescing to the disobedience of our members instead of discipling people into faithfulness. And I understand it's a risk, and I understand particularly in churches where they have kind of the the governance where the, the congregation has the power to kick you out if they don't like what you're saying. So I understand that. Like, I, I get that that's attention. But as ministers, we got to have enough faith in in God, that if the Spirit is compelling us to say things, to speak truth, that God will sustain us and see us through if we faithfully step out on faith in that way. And so I'm deeply lamenting that um, in too many of our congregations, we're allowing our congregants' disobedience to dictate what discipleship looks like instead of us prophetically speaking God's word in a way that disciples our members into faithfulness. Yeah, um, part of what's giving me hope is there are a lot of sisters and brothers who are listening and opening themselves up to some of these conversations that just were completely closed four years ago. Um, I am celebrating the fact that 
a lot of these conversations are becoming more normative and we're seeing things that didn't exist. Like we just got the indigenous translation, the scripture that just came out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I know our sister Will Gaffney is celebrating the fact that she put out her woman's Bible commentary for everybody. And it's a number one seller. Like some of those things have just haven't been true for us historically. So I, I'm celebrating that we are actually making some progress in these conversations. I'm celebrating that you and Jamar were New York Times bestsellers uh, when, you know, when the crap was hitting the fan last year and folks yeah. were like, what do we do? Like, yeah. and, and folks are turning at least to the right people. Cause for mm -hmm. a long time, you know, when we were in these perilous times, folks would try to turn and I didn't trust the voices they were turning to. So, so I, I appreciate that there's been a, a, a recalibration where I think people are, are getting more exposed and there's a more of a litmus test going on. Now that's not to say that that's the problem is solved. Cause let's look at the, the best sellers list right now. And a number of those folks who you were talking about earlier, who deny racism is a problem or systemic in any way, they the best sellers. And so we still got work to do so we can celebrate and still be sober about the fact that there's still a lot of work yet to be done. And um, the, lastly, you know, we talk about, righteousness and reconciliation and, you know, um, but sometimes when, you know, um, we don't imagine it, you know, what it could look like, you know? And so what does righteousness and reconciliation look like to you? What does righteous reconciliation look like? Yeah, so I'm going to use something metaphoric and I'm going to land it. So one of the things I talk about, and people might have heard me say this before, is that, you know, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. That is everything outside of the scriptures that actually tell us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our biological bloodlines. And it's baptism that must redefine who our family is for us today as the people of God. And for me... Righteousness looks like us responding to oppression, injustice, systemic sin for our baptismal family the way that we would if it was harming our biological family. When we see families separated at the border, we refuse to say, oh, well, that's a Latin, Latinx issue. I don't have to be concerned about it because it's not directly impacting me. When I see sexual assault going on, I don't just turn a blind eye because as a male, I'm not targeted in the same way. When I see, you know, indigenous folks advocating for the sacred land rights, I am compelled to go and advocate as if the government's trying to take my property. Um, and so for me, what racial righteousness looks like is us functioning as an interconnected body us being biblical um, and realizing that our flourishing is inherently connected and intertwined and that it's not a worldly definition of success that says that, you know, I do everything I can to make myself prosper, but I realize the biblical truth that I'm blessed to be a blessing, that what God has entrusted me with is to flow through us and not just to us. Uh, we have to have this broader Jeremiah-ish understanding of the gospel that uh, we are 
commissioned to be people who seek the peace and prosperity of our communities, which means all of us and not just some of us. And when we do that, that's where our own flourishing is found. And so for me, when we get that worldview um, and we actually start to live into it in ways that cost us, that subvert the status quo, i.e. subversive witnesses, then that's when I think we're really starting to pursue racial righteousness and reconciliation and and really tangibly trying to live into the Lord's Prayer when we pray God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's just not theoretical. Amen, amen. And just ending on this, um, we are blessed to be a blessing, you know, Simple is what the old folks used to say, <laughs> you know, and it's something to it, you know, yep. and um, I'm so grateful for you, brother. And, um, you know, we'll put all the things you guys get this book, Subversive Witness, Scriptures Call to Leverage Privilege. You will not regret it. I am so glad that you are writing um, and continuing to write. And I'm so glad you're preaching. <laughs> <laughs> Because as you guys know, he was talking, but you know, all I, I if I had an organ, I would put like a a, a, a few <laughs> little keys behind it. <laughs> but I'm so grateful for your voice and just mm-hmm. for your um, your brilliance and your wisdom, um, and just how you uh, deconstruct the scripture, you know, um, and 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 the work that you do in that to um, to really unfold and reveal um, God's truth. So I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Be The Bridge podcast. Dominic, the voice. Gilead. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, thank you, thank you. And I just a quick note, there's also yeah. an accompanying small group video-based curriculum that goes okay. with the book because I really wanted to empower people to have do this work in community. This I is not it. work that we can do by ourselves in isolation. We need folks to encourage us, to walk alongside us, to pray for us, intercede on our behalf, and stand with us as we do the bridge building work. So there is like a small group. So like basically the be the bridge groups could read this book and do the study yep you see there's another thing for (laughs) our 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 groups to do so we're so grateful for you and we'll make sure we put the links to all of that in there and we'll actually get this information to um um, to our group leaders too so so grateful go to the donors table if you'd like to hear the unedited version of this podcast Thanks for listening to the Be The Bridge podcast. To find out more about the Be The Bridge organization and or to become a bridge builder in your community, go to bethebridge.com. Again, that's bethebridge.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to rate and review it on this platform and share it with as many people as you possibly can. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's show was edited, recorded, and produced by Trayvon Potts at Integrated Entertainment Studios in Metro Atlanta, Georgia. The host and executive producer is Latasha Morrison. Lauren C. Brown is the senior producer. And transcribed by Sarah Conitzer. Please join us next time. This has been a Be The Bridge production.